This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The federal government's holding a national early years summit in Canberra today with the goal of bringing together experts and departments to design a strategy to better serve the youngest Australians. Research shows the first five years of a child's life are developmentally the most important and that achieving better results in these formative years follow the kids into their teens and into adult life. Here's National Education and Parenting reporter Connor Duffy. Early Education Minister Anne Ali knows the Canberra Summit has lofty goals that can seem removed from the daily battles of parenting. But she cites her own reality as a young mother in her 20s as a practical example of how high the stakes can be. She was unaware her two-year-old son Adam was suffering from profound hearing loss until he went to daycare. When my son was two, he was in um, long daycare in early childhood education and his carers came to me and said, you know, we think there's something with Adam, you know, you need to go get him checked out. Minister Ali took him to a doctor and an operation was quickly scheduled. Because we picked it up at two and because we picked it up early enough that there was no long-term hearing damage, he was able to get surgery. As uh, soon as he got that surgery, he started talking and he hasn't su- shut up since. Uh, but he went on to become ducks of his school. That is an example of how we can get it right in those first five years. She worries there's still parents and kids falling through the cracks. There was nothing for me to compare it to. I had no idea what was normal, what was not normal, where my child should be. Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth says parents can struggle to find even more routine advice. As a parent myself, having a reliable place to go to for information and advice is just one example. Um, Knowing, uh, you know, how much tummy time to do, the messages uh, around um, reading to your kids every night. Today's summit will launch months of work by an expert advisory board that will bring a strategy to government by the end of the year. It includes epidemiologist and National Living Treasurer Professor Fiona Stanley, who says intervention in the first five years of life pays for itself later. A lot of the habits, a lot of the ways you think, a lot of the ways that you do, for example, whether you like sweet food or not, all of the things that are going to lay down your healthy future are happening then. Epidemiologist Professor Fiona Stanley ending that report from Connor Duffy. We're into a different phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, yet for the tens of thousands of long COVID sufferers, the virus is still affecting their lives every day. A federal parliamentary inquiry into long COVID will hear from some of them today and their experiences in seeking clinical treatment. But some medical experts say Australia has poor data on long COVID and that's holding back treating the condition. Catherine Gregory reports. Jared Flanagan, his wife and son, got COVID-19 early on in the pandemic. But two and a half years later, they're still suffering from it. All of us do actually have chronic fatigue. We all have insomnia, some cognitive impairment. They were infected before vaccines were available. Jared's wife spent over a month in ICU and they've not managed to quite get past it. We're on annual leave at the moment and about to formally retire in a matter of weeks because I can no longer do my job. My wife has actually had to stop work, just not able to perform. Jared and his wife even took part in the Long COVID Rehabilitation Service with Austin Health in Victoria, but that's no longer running now. It's given us strategies to deal with what we're suffering. It doesn't cure us, 
Unfortunately, the hospitals don't know how to cure it. He's since struggled to find an alternative service. Media reporting has revealed a lack of long COVID services for patients like Jared, with even some clinics having to shut down or turn people away. Our service is really busy. Um, we're oversubscribed in terms of the waiting times and uh, the number of patients that we can see each week. Associate Professor Anthony Byrne is the co-leader of the St Vincent's Long COVID Clinic in Sydney, which, unlike other similar clinics, has been able to keep services running. But unfortunately for many of the patients, there, there isn't any. There's, there's large gaps. It's one of the issues he hopes the parliamentary inquiry into Long COVID will be able to highlight. Infectious diseases expert Professor Tanya Sorel is chair of a long COVID expert group of researchers, which is presenting to the inquiry today about what needs to be done to improve how we manage the condition. To really understand how common long COVID actually is, and we don't have that information for the Australian community. That's because there's huge gaps in data about how many people might have long COVID and even what symptoms they have or a definition of what constitutes long COVID. We can do research in order to improve those outcomes, think about what actions we can actually prioritise to address those gaps and to consider how government researchers and the health sectors can actually work together to implement and deliver those interventions that we... Uh... The inquiry is also hearing from people with long COVID and their experiences with seeking treatment. Labor MP and physician Dr Mike Freelander is the chair of the health committee overseeing the inquiry. He says without sufficient data, it's hard to determine what clinical services are needed, like specialised clinics or community support. The long COVID clinics should be a tertiary referral place where people uh, have been through primary care, seen their GPs. They, they should be a resource for GPs to be able to refer to. That burden will fall on GPs and, and the primary care system and we need to help our GPs deal with that. There's a lot of pressure on GPs and we need to work out some government response to this to support the GPs and the patients. The Chairman of Federal Parliament's Standing Committee on Health, Dr Mark Freelander, ending that report by Catherine Gregory. It's Australia's largest river system, and despite 10 years and $13 billion, a plan setting out how to share the water between farmers, communities and the environment won't be met on time. Water ministers will next meet next week and plot a way forward. National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan takes us into the Murray-Darling Basin. On Tuddy Tuddy Country, near Robin Vale in northern Victoria, we meet traditional owner Melissa Kennedy. Yeah, so we're at Magoya Lagoon, so we're on the Victorian side of the Murray River. Magoya Lagoon is a really significant ancestral place for um, Tuddy Tuddy and for my people. The research fellow from Melbourne University says river management isn't working as it should. Because of the way that the river, the Murray River, has been manipulated, uh, the lagoon really isn't functioning the way that it should. For too long, too much water was taken out of the rivers. So in 2012, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was legislated. It says by June next year, 2,750 gigalitres a year, more than the equivalent of five Sydney harbours, must remain in the rivers to boost the environment. So far, more than 2,100 gigalitres have been recovered toward that target, most of it from farming. Another 450 gigalitres was also promised to be found for the environment through efficiency projects. Five gigalitres have been recovered toward that target. Oh, I know. There needs to be more work done. 
Colin Grundy is the last farmer before the Murray Mouth in South Australia. There's been to be more collaboration and looking at the river as a whole, not just state by state. His family has farmed here for more than a century, taking a front seat to basin politics. That's what's killing this system is is each minister's looking after their own patch. Next week, water ministers will meet to discuss if, how and when the hundreds of gigalitres of remaining water might be recovered for the environment. Jeremy Cass from Riverina Wine Grape Growers worries that to meet the shortfall, a decision could be made to buy back more water entitlements from irrigators, leaving less water available for farming. I think it's extremely detrimental because I think those water buybacks will take from the pool of water that we use down here now to grow food and fibre and it will make it so that we haven't got that vibrant community anymore, so the community will suffer. After a couple of difficult years, grape grower Steve Barbon says at the right price he might be tempted. If the government came in tomorrow, and look, I would consider it myself, and say, look, here's $12,000 a megalitre for your high-security water, and you look at the industry that I'm in and how tough it has been in the last couple of years, and we don't know if it's going to get any better soon, you consider it. Under the plan, not all of the water for the environment was intended to come from farming. More than 600 gigalitres a year was to come from state-run projects. Some of these are so far behind, the Basin Authority expects only half the water promised could be delivered, warning it may take a decade beyond next year's deadline to see some of the works completed. Kat Sullivan reporting, and you can see the full story on Landline this Sunday on ABC TV or on iview. A Sri Lankan protester who was jailed after taking over the presidential palace last year says he was harassed in prison and threatened with death. Protesters in Sri Lanka have been facing a major crackdown under a new president, with the country still facing an economic crisis, stripping people of basic supplies. And hopes for an economic bailout are fading as China refuses to reduce Sri Lanka's debt. South Asia correspondent Avani Dice reports from Colombo. Student leader Vasanthamudalige spent months building Sri Lanka's historical protest movement that ousted a president after taking over his palace last year. But the new president, Ranul Vikramasinghe, has been cracking down on that uprising, saying the country needs stability. As one of the faces of the movement, Vasantha was arrested and jailed at this protest six months ago. Right from the moment I was arrested and in those days immediately afterwards, I feared for my life and that I might be in danger. Vasantha and two other students were accused of terrorism for their role in the takeover of government buildings in July. He's now been released on bail and has told the ABC police officers threatened to kill him. We were taken to a police station and an officer sat at a table to question me. He takes his pistol out and changes the bullets. While doing that, he asks if I knew what happened to the other activists who were killed. He threatened us by saying the same would happen to us. We will kill you, he'd say. Sri Lanka police has not responded to the ABC's requests for comment. Vasantha Mudligay was jailed under the country's controversial Prevention of Terrorism Act. Sri Lanka's Human Rights Commissioner has found 84% of people jailed under the act were tortured after arrest. International human rights groups campaigned for Vasantha's release. 
Although they said they'd attack us, they couldn't because of the support we had. So they would persecute us mentally by making us suffer, taking away sanitation and denying us health care. I was kept in a four by four metre metal cage where I couldn't even sleep properly. Sri Lanka's protests were sparked by an economic crisis that stripped people of basic supplies like power, food and petrol. The crisis is ongoing, but Sri Lanka's President Ranul Vikramasinghe says he's close to securing a bailout from the International Monetary Fund and that his government is in talks with China to reduce Sri Lanka's debts. By the end of 2023, we can achieve economic growth. When I first addressed this parliament, as the president, the inflation of the country was 70%. Due to the measures we have implemented, it was reduced to 54% in January 2023. But protesters like Vasantha Mudaligay say they'll continue to fight for systemic change in Sri Lanka as the country continues to suffer through economic turmoil. We need to have a complete and total intervention. We demand that President Ranil Wickramasinghe resigns. This is Avani Dias in Colombo, reporting for AM. US President Joe Biden's been giving his first detailed comments about the spy balloon saga, which has seen fighter jets shoot down a total of four objects this month. The president says in future, rules will be tightened for how the military deals with these issues. For more on this, I spoke with our North America correspondent, Barbara Miller. Barb, what did President Biden have to say about these objects? He said that he made no apologies for taking down the first object. That's the one that the Americans say is a Chinese spy balloon. It was shot down earlier this month off the coast of South Carolina. Then the further three objects shot down in as many days over last weekend. He said that they didn't appear to be spy balloons. He said they were taken down, though, because they did pose a potential threat to commercial aircraft and because at the time they were unable to determine whether, in fact, these were surveillance objects. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were, but nothing nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other any other country. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. And the president says he wants to rejig the rules of engagement. Barb, talk us through that. Yeah, the way he put it was he's asked his team to come back with sharper rules going forward for dealing with unidentified objects to distinguish between an object which really poses a safety and security risk uh, and needs to be taken down and those that do not. Essentially, I guess what he's saying is they can't keep and don't want to keep shooting objects out the sky that they later determine were not Chinese spy balloons. Uh, And he sought to reassure the public that there was no evidence that there were more objects objects flying around, but they'd simply fine-tuned their radar in the wake of this first balloon. He also talked about updating the rules for launching and maintaining airborne objects. So I think we're also going to see new rules there for these uh, commercial or scientific institutions who might have these kind of objects that they've just taken down in the air. North America correspondent Barbara Miller. 
Food charities aren't expecting the record demand they're facing to ease any time soon, with interest rates still rising and inflation biting across the nation. They're also desperate for volunteers. In Western Australia, an unlikely partnership with prisoners is helping while also preparing the inmates for a return to society. This report from Isabel Masali. Okay, these are beverage packs. So we've got a tin of coffee and um, a litre of milk, sugar, some TV snacks. As this woman prepares charity food packs, she admits for the first time in a while, she looks forward to waking up and coming to work. You can't tell, but she's a little different to the other volunteers at the Perth Food Bank. This woman, who we'll call Louise, is a prisoner. It's nice to be able to talk to the community and feel like you're a part of it still and, you know, see little kids running around and, and you know, happy and, and yeah, it just makes me more excited to, to be released and actually get it back out in the community and experience life again and enjoy. Several women from a minimum security prison have become regulars here, helping out with customers on the tills and produce out the back. It's a partnership that ground to a halt when COVID hit. So Kate O'Hara was more than happy to see their return late last year at a time when demand for food charities was surging. She's the CEO of Food Bank WA. What we never expected was to have the level of demand from households across our branch network that we are facing today. In December, we had our busiest day on record of 914 households coming through our service in one day. Two years ago, our normal was some 200. Now, without the support we get from the teams that visit from Baronia each week, we simply would not be able to cope with the volume. Michael Henderson is the acting superintendent of the Baronia Pre-Release Centre for Women. He says projects like this one allow the women to give back to the community and provide a pathway into the workforce. For a lot of the women that we've uh, had through custody for circumstances that their lives have found them in, haven't always had the best employment history, the best relationship history, etc. And this is a way of building their self-esteem and self-confidence back up to when we release them from custody, being able to seek a job and um, hold down that job, as it were. It's a transition that can be confronting for some women. For some of those people, the world looks a very different place from the one they left. I remember personally opening my wallet up to do something in front of a person in custody and she didn't know we had plastic money now as in you know the the poly uh, banknotes we now have so the world changes rapidly and increasingly so so this is the first opportunity for a lot of women who've done a little bit of time in custody to see the outside world again so that's as equally important as all the other stuff they start to learn that there is a society out there another prisoner's face lights up as she tells am about how she helped prepare food packs for those affected by recent flooding in the state's north. But when I ask how she feels about her release... For me, I think I'm kind of nervous of going out. Being what it is now, yeah, I'm really anxious about the cost of living, the cost of food. But to have new skills now, I am easily should be able to get work, I think. But, and um, it should be all right. I think so. Maybe, I hope. One of the women from the Baronia Centre there, Isabel Masali reporting, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. 
The head of the Reserve Bank has fronted a Senate inquiry saying raising interest rates is the best way to fight inflation. Today, business and economics reporter Gareth Hutchins on why there could actually be an ingenious alternative. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.